You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. India levelled the series in Chennai as they thumped England by 317 runs ahead of the day-night test at Ahmedabad starting next week. I'm Yaz Rana and to discuss the test, it's many talking points and a whole lot more in the world of international cricket this week. I'm joined by the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, the features editor of Wisdom.com, Tara Hashim, and the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner. As much as it pains me to do so, let's just get the pitch talk out the way at the start. Labelled a stinker by Michael Vaughan, unacceptable by Mark Waugh. Taha, do you have a problem with a pitch that takes a test well into its fourth day where one team scored over 600 runs? Um, yeah, I mean, like you said, India scored more than 600 runs in the match. I think the, the criticism is pretty nonsensical. Uh, it, it wasn't impossible to bat. Uh, in many ways, I'd, I'd argue that this wicket was better than the one in the first test. Um, when I say better, I mean a wicket that offered up consistency throughout the match, throughout the whole match. So in the first session, won the toss, it was flat for the first couple of days, and then it just starts playing tricks when India started batting. Here it was turning early. It's just that England didn't bowl as well as India did. England didn't bat as well as India did. It's pretty simple as that. I've found the pitch chat pretty tedious and a bit unnecessary. Yeah, I thought it was quite telling that England haven't criticised pitch publicly, at least yet. Um, Root didn't after the game and none of the guys who did press duty during the test match did either. Um, so I think, I think that's all we need to say about the pitch. It's kind of what you expect in India, as Joe Root has said. Moving on, for me, the test, if not quite decided, was well on course for its eventual result on day one. Rohit Sharma was out of this world, 161 on a turning wicket. Joe, how good was that innings? Um, and how much do you think he was aided by England just not, not quite being on it on that opening day? Uh, he was certainly aided by uh, some of England's attack not being quite on it. That said, uh, I thought he got a little bit lost over the course of the Test match, but Ollie Stone's first spell was absolutely superb. He could have had more wickets. That was not an easy session of batting because of the pitch and because of the excellence of Stone. Uh, Moen was a bit loose. Stuart Broad wasn't quite at his best. So there were, there were runs on offer, but I think... On balance, I think we need to talk more about the brilliance of Rohit than, than England's shortcomings, at least in, in relation to that innings. Uh, yeah, I mean, you say it was almost done on day one. It didn't feel quite like that, but certainly uh, by lunch on day two, England's 39 for four at that stage. I think the game was, was up then, um, which without going into detail about the pitch, again, just shows how ridiculous that argument is. The pitch didn't change that much from day one to day two, and the game is over. Uh, by lunch on day two. And I think that's, I think there's a bit of frustration in some of the criticism as well, because I think neutrals as well as England fans would have been disappointed that the match is basically over after four sessions. Um, and test cricket isn't great in those circumstances. So, so that was disappointing, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame 
the pitch. I'd, I'd, I'd blame Rohit Sharma's brilliance. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously from then it was just um, England fighting against the tide. Uh, and it was a pretty chastening test of the kind we've become used to when England visit India. Just on, on Rohit, I kind of find it amazing that he, he's a undisputed ODI great, undisputed IPL great, yet it's taken him so, and, and he does so in such a classy way, um, it, it looks technically sound. How, like, it, it surprised me it's taken this long, Ben, for him to, to, to get a prolonged go in Test cricket and kind of show everyone that he can actually be a brilliant Test match opening batsman as well, at least in India. Uh, yeah, it's it's surprising, I guess, when you look at him like a big picture wave. I think when you actually drill down into his career, uh, especially, I mean, we've, we've there's loads of great ODI batsmen who have struggled to crack Test cricket because it's a, a different game where you know the white ball doesn't move around much, and that's been his his downfall, especially away from home, is uh, the ball's seeming and, and slight technical deficiencies there. I guess he does look a very technically correct player, but equally. I mean, I think you can you can easily, if you look very elegant, people can take that to mean the same thing as having sort of like a pristine technique that's going to be able to deal with C movement. But I don't think they are the same thing, really. I think that you can easily, you know, if, if you're driving sort of on the up and very languidly, that can then translate to sort of playing early and then getting caught out when the ball's doing a bit. Um, so it's a surprise in some way, but not in others. And his record has always been very good in India from his first two test matches and he made 202 games against West Indies back in Sachin's farewell series. Um, but I think what's interesting is how he'll go in England this summer because he was, I thought he was brilliant in spurts in Australia, but didn't get a big score and often got himself out after battling through really tough new ball periods. Uh, and this ensures that he'll definitely open in that series for me, I think. But also, I think there's a real chance that he could sort of make a belated claim to be sort of like an all-format great rather than just an ODI great. He never cracked test cricket. So, yeah. And then this was, for me, his best test innings and like his most valuable for India as well, considering the, the state of the pitch and just how much better he looked than everyone else, basically. Because he, obviously other players scored runs, but he did it in a way that sort of seemed like he was playing on a different surface, whereas other players found a way to sort of negotiate the challenges of the pitch, I guess. And that was partly to do with England, but mostly to do with how good he was, as Joe says. Yeah, on that, do you think that we kind of didn't see this with England because England didn't bat long enough to, to see the benefits of it? But I thought that batting did actually look easier once the ball got older. I don't think it was anything to do with the pitch, but um, I think Ashwin's talked about how the ball hasn't been ideal from a bowler's point of view. Um, do, do you think that's... Do you think that's fair? And do you think that came into it at all? That once you kind of get through the first 30, 40 overs, the batting became more manageable against the older ball? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that, I mean, with the pitch chat, I think I'm probably slightly more understanding of people who are critical of the pitch than Taha and Joe are. I think that when you see the ball turn that much in the first session of day one, it's easy to think, okay, this is going to be an absolute minefield by the time it gets to day three. But also the pitch didn't seem to get that much worse throughout the test either it wasn't like it was breaking up loads and it wasn't like it started with loads of rough patches it just started being sort of kind of underprepared in a way I guess um so it both was kind of the same for all teams all the way through which is as Taha says isn't the same as the first test pitch and you're right I think it definitely did get easier to bat and you saw that I think with Ben Folk's innings as well as well as he played I think it was partly down to the fact that he had slightly easier conditions and with Ashwin and Virat as well on day three so yeah, I think if, if England could have battled through that, those first couple of hours, only two wickets, one wicket down, we could have actually seen a much, a much closer test match. Uh, but yeah, as Joe says, it was just all done by, by the first session on day two. Let's get on to Moeen then. A wonderfully Moeen test. He picked up England's best figures in both innings, uh, although he was quite loose in the first, going at five and over for much of the first innings. Then he hit 43 of 18 in England's second innings, the highest score of the Test match for an England player. Um, and it was very nearly the quickest Test match 50 of all time. Uh, quite a lot to pack into one Test. And now he's going back to the UK for the rest of the Test leg of the tour, going home as originally scheduled. Joe, what do you, what do you make of that? It is Mohanadi's last Test match, and I think there's a, a decent chance, regrettably, that it might be. Um, what a way to go! What a what a mowing way to go overall to 
to clean up India's captain with a massive turning off break, but basically bowled quite badly in the first innings. Uh, I did actually think he bowled much better in the second innings. There was signs of control coming in there, um, less full tosses. And yeah, that that little kind of cameo at the end was was um, classically mowing. I have to say, and I'm not sure if this is just my poor knowledge, I wasn't aware that he was going home uh, at the end of this test match. They're talking about this as though it was pre-planned, but I wasn't personally aware that was the case. So that was a surprise to me uh, this morning. Uh, and it does make it all look a bit messy that, that Bess got dropped for mowing, uh, which might have been a dent to Bess's confidence. And now Moen's going home. I thought that could have been um, managed a bit better. They could have said, well, if Moen's going home, then Moen gets this test match to give Bess a breather. So he's in, in, in good nick for the third and fourth test. Instead, it looks like they've kind of, no one's come out of it feeling particularly great, I think. Um, and it's a shame that Moen's not there for the third test because, as I say, he was starting to bowl um, a bit better. But yeah, if, if you could um, encapsulate Moen in, in one test match, I think this would probably be it. He's, it's, it's pretty understandable that he's going home. Um, he had COVID and he spent plenty of time in isolation on this tour as well. I think we overlook these things pretty easily sometimes um, and just expect people to come onto the park with sort of no external issues but it is it is really sad to see him go because he sort of he was going into the match you know like 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 Joe mentioned um he didn't bowl as well in the first innings and then by the second innings he was he was looking a lot better and that would sort of set him up perfect to, perfectly for the for the last two tests because you know he's not had he's not had a warm match he's barely played in the cricket in the last five months um and then when you look at obviously the the, the decision to drop best for the first test it kind of felt like Moeen was now like ready to, to, he was set for the next three tests. And even though England were losing this game on, uh, losing this game early on, um, Moeen would get the chance to get some overs on his belt and get ready for the next two tests. I think at the start of the series, he'd said that it was likely he was going to be rested for the, for the back, back end of this, of the series. But depending on how he would bowl, how he'd play, that could have changed. But obviously he's going home now. I think it's quite sad as well. A lot of the reason it's quite sad as well is just the way he batted at the end there as well. He's obviously a really good player of spin. England could have even reconfigured their lineup for the next test and maybe had him in the in the top six, top seven, where you can get another seamer and play for a pink ball test, which would have been really good for the balance. Um, and yeah, it's, it's pretty likely that this could this could be his last test, um, especially if. Jack Leach or Don Best now becomes the number one spinner and you just see that one spinner in England, um, which would be a massive shame. I think it's a massive shame that we've had England have six tests in the subcontinent winter. And Moeen Ali, who I still think is England's best spinner, is just going to play one of them. And Moeen Ali, who's one of England's best players spin, is going to play one of them. It's just it's sad to see all around, but obviously it's totally understandable it's going home. The way England have framed it is a bit strange, obviously, saying that he's chosen to go home when initially there was the suggestion that he was always going to be rested for the back half of the series. And then to go with the fact that he's been in and out of the ODI and the white ball squads recently, I, I imagine he'll play in India because they'll want the, uh, the second spinner, but he's not been a nail on the, in the white ball stuff. So in my mind, I was thinking, you know, if you're going to use him during this period of time, use him for the, for the entirety of the red ball thing. Yeah, I think, I think, you're both bang on in that, well, quite a few parties don't come out of this looking particularly great. I'd say that Moeen isn't one of those parties. I think that, you know, he has to take decisions which are best for his own welfare. And, uh, and yeah, he, he played well in this test. And, you know, so there's, there's, a, there's no blame being put on him. But you're Taha's right. I think it was Joe Root who said that Moeen's chosen to, whereas the other players have had the decision framed as, this is when they are being rested, which puts an unnecessary amount of sort of agency on mowing. Or it's just it's just strange how it's been framed differently for different players. But I would suggest that it shouldn't be Joe Root uh, who's doing that in the first place. If this is about player welfare and you know full selection system, this should be the coach and the team management really, rather than sort of a, a captain who's just come out of like a pretty chastening loss having to sort of like talk about quite a delicate issue like that so I think that that also reflects not great and there's also just a strange inconsistency about it and the fact that Moeen's going to be back in India for the for the T20i series as is Joss Butler but Joss Butler went home, went home after the first game and Moeen's going home after the second so I, and so it feels like 
if Josh Butler had to do that to get a significant amount of time at home, Moen's actually not going to get too much time at home if he's going to be linking up again in time for, I mean, Josh Butler's going to be back in India by the time the third test starts and Moen's going after the second test ends and they're both going to start playing cricket again at the same time. I kind of feel like England's, it's, it's a laudable rotation policy and it, at least in, in intention and they're trying to be flexible and forward thinking and understanding and that's all very good. I think they've actually sort of box themselves into a sort of a, a new sort of rigid, rigidity in a different sort of way. Um, I think the other thing that comes into it as well is we don't yet know whether Moeen will be playing in the IPL because the draft is on Thursday. He doesn't currently have a contract. If it turns out he's not, then you wonder if he could have missed some or all of the T20Is or even just the ODIs and then the IPL and if that might have been something that was discussed a bit more and if England just said, okay, let's wait just a couple of days, see if you get a deal, reevaluate then how you're feeling. And if that was discussed as well, it feels like there's both sort of like a lack of clarity over how the whole discussions have gone and that in a way it's difficult to question these things when they're put forward because you don't want to be seen to be questioning, you know, the overall importance of mental health, which is definitely paramount. I think you can, there are legitimate questions to ask about England's, uh, England's policy in this case. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. The, the word being used to describe England's policy um, quite a lot is, is, is laudable. Um, it, everyone thinks it's a good thing that they're taking players' well-beings in, into account. Uh, everyone knows how much cricket England have in the next year and how much the all-format players have in particular. But I think the problem most England fans who are questioning it are having isn't that England shouldn't be resting players. It's when they are resting players. And if this is the opportunity he's given to rest, I don't think anyone's criticising Moeen or taking the opportunity. It's just... It's just this is a player who is really, really important to England's success in this particular test series. Being rested and then being available for white ball series that no one really sees as anywhere near as important as a test series that's all to play for in India. Um, I guess England are kind of saved a little bit by the next test being a day-night test, so they can more feasibly go into it with just Leach as, as the sole spinner. I don't know what you guys think about how they'll go to replace Moeen for the third and then fourth test. I just want to say that I, I do fear that, that Moeen is going to be the one who is going to suffer in terms of the narrative that's going to be shaped from this in terms of them saying that, 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 that he asked to go home. He's, it, it's always, there's always been a, a level of mismanagement with, with Moeen Ali in terms of terms of England, you know, them not giving him a central contract, that when he was a regular fixture in the side, moving him up and down the order. Um, and so I, I do think that certain people um, will blame Murray unfairly, that is. Um, but in terms of replacing him, I think, I think they'll just, well, the, the squad they picked for the third test is, is Don Bess is, is back into that 17-man squad. I think, I think they'll, they'll still go with him. I mean, at the same time, in terms of pink ball test, the last time, the only time there's been a pink ball test in India, all the quicks, none of the Indian spinners took any wickets. So they could just go with Leach. But I still think in India, you still want that option of having two spinners. Um, you still don't really know what the formula is for playing pink ball test in India. I think Bess will have to play at least one of the next two tests. Um, and so it's just, it's a weird situation, isn't it? Because how is it that he's been dropped because he's, he's being inconsistent. How has he somehow in a week managed to become consistent again, you know? Um, but this is just the situation they can find themselves in. And I was even thinking maybe if they were going to go for one of the reserve spinners, but I think now, <laughs> now they pick best, you know, it's just going to be interesting to see how he, how he responds to being dropped after, after that first test. I think the interesting thing is how well Joe Root bowled in the game just gone as well. Uh, I mean, you could make a claim that he is as reliable an off-spinner as Don Bess. You can get a bit sucked into that because obviously it was a very favourable pitch that Root was bowling on and he was bowling at a time when uh, England actually managed to kind of keep the run rate down quite well and, and had India under wraps for a bit there. So you don't want to read too much into this. But as Dar says, the spinners aren't expected to do quite as much in the pink ball test and England could potentially get an extra seamer in, seam in there and have Root as a, as a backup second spinner who seems to be bowling well. And then you potentially still got Lawrence there to bowl a few overs. That is potentially quite a, quite a tempting way to go. Um, but so much of it will depend on what that pitch looks like. We can talk about pink ball. We can talk about the uh, floodlights. But obviously the pitch 
is still what needs to be bowled on. Uh, and I don't think after what we've just seen, India are going to be putting down a, a, a green seamer for, for England to, to exploit. I think it's still going to deteriorate quickly. Um, I think India will back themselves that even if they lost the toss on the pitch that we've just seen in the second test, they would have gone on to win that match. Uh, and I think from the way England batted in both innings and the way India batted in their second innings, I think there's a lot to be said for that. So I think there'll be another, another turner, uh, albeit England seamers will hope to get more out of the pink ball and the floodlights. I think the, the other thing for me to question is, I think, I think you can legitimately question the importance that England are putting on white ball cricket in general this year. I mean, this is players, so players aren't being rested so they can play the T20 World Cup. They're being rested so they can play in a warm-up series for T20 World Cup. When this is, this is the thing that matters in Test cricket for England this year, this and the Ashes and the home series against India. And I think there's, this is different to the 2019 World Cup, which was uh, on home soil. You know, there wasn't much else going on sports-wise when that tournament was on. That was the chance that England saw and had built up to for four years to sort of rejuvenate sort of a public that had kind of almost forgotten cricket had existed in a way, whereas this is going to be, the T20 World Cup is just nowhere near as important as the 2019 World Cup for me in terms of that overall big picture, which is why there was part of the justification in putting so much emphasis on it. You know, it's going to be played in November, there's going to be football on at the same time, it's going to be the other side of the world, it's going to be really hard to drive the same level of excitement, whereas this is, you know, the the series that's being diminished is, I mean, you know, it's partly by chance, but it's on free-to-air TV, if England could have, you know, won this in dramatic circumstances or if they could have given themselves the best chance to, in terms of the ECB's other remit as well as the national team's success of ensuring the longevity of cricket in the country is like, you know, at the forefront of the conversation, ensuring that this series was like as hotly contested as possible is much more important to me than either the five-match T20Is that follow or the T20 World Cup. I also don't really buy the argument that Owen Morgan got, you know, screwed over last summer by having to have a weakened team. So Joe Root has to suck up this time because last summer, like Morgan had close to a full strength team for that Australian Pakistan series and was only really for the Ireland games when England were weakened. Whereas Root is without his best side for four tests, which could go a long way towards defining his capacity and keeping him in his job. I mean, if England get hammered in these next two and then all of a sudden it goes a little bit pear-shaped against New Zealand who are very good because they're sort of you know they've lost momentum and some players are out of form and stuff that's like you're getting close to pressure on Joe Root again and that's a, a quite unfair position to put him in so I think that that prioritization for me does smart as well and I, it's not the way I would have gone I mean I know that you know we're supposed to see them as equal at the moment but <laughs> I don't think I don't think that a five match T20i series bilateral in India is ever going to have the same importance as a Test Series India, and I think that's okay. And it's odd that we should be convinced that they are the same. Um, I, I agree with Ben that, that this Test Series is more important than the C20 World Cup, but I think there is an assumption there that, that, um, that Ed Smith or the ECB are making these decisions. What they've emphasised all the way through, that there is a conversation being had with these players. Uh, I was just reading George DeBell's piece on Crick Info about Moen Ali's Test match and going home, and, and he intimates that this was Moen's decision. Moen was asked to pick the point that he wanted to have a break as all three format players have been asked to do. And Moen picked this part of the test series. Now, I don't know for sure that that's true, but, but George does know Moen well. And there are reasons why Moen would want to do that. He's, he's kind of clinging onto his T20 place a little bit. So this is difficult. We can have these conversations, but we don't really know where that, that balance lies. We're told there is a conversation had between the ECB and the player. We don't know quite how much, influence the player has in those conversations. I thought it was interesting, Johnny Best, though, on, on the Channel 4 coverage the other day, talking about going home for a rest. Um, and he seemed quite chilled about it all. Uh, which, you know, maybe he doesn't have much choice. Maybe that's just what he has to say. But that's not really Besto's style. He, he generally says when something's um, pissed him off. And he's not been afraid to do so in the past. But he seemed to understand the reasons behind it all. Um, so I think sometimes we can perhaps put too much emphasis on, on Ed Smith here when actually there's a, there's a bigger conversation being had. And, you know, Bairstow turns up now available for the next two test matches. And actually, it doesn't look like such a bad scenario for Bairstow now. I think, I, I mean, I would pick him for the third test. Uh, this, this rotation policy debate has been going on for the last few weeks. I don't have any issues with that. Um, it's more 
just the the way the whole moment things come out has been has been worrying because I just think while everyone is really understanding of uh, Josh Butler, Besto, and and the others not playing, I feel like this is not this is this this situation has not been given the right level of clarity, and I think the the player is going to suffer in terms of. The, the criticism that's that's going to come from this, basically. Going back to the test itself, we've not talked about India's spinners yet, who were both brilliant. Two of the three were brilliant. Um, Ravichandra and Ashwin had a worldie of a test match, taking eight wickets and scoring his fifth test century. He's, he's one of the one of the best players of his generation, really, at the absolute peak of his game. Had a brilliant series in Australia, obviously, and now doing doing the business here. Um, and Tar, a stunning debut from Axar Patel, who is yet another Indian debutant who looks test ready from day one. Yeah, right. Rightly, that there's plenty of praise for plenty of praise for uh, for Ashwin. Um, he's you know just typically brilliant. Um, but I thought, yeah, I thought Ashwin Patel bowled beautifully on debut. Um, in that first test, Ashwin he sort of lacked that support from from the other end, from the from the other two spinners, um, Nadim and, and Washington. Um, but here he had it. I mean, Patel he played that sort of Jadeja role to perfection. Um, that low arm gives him that that flatter trajectory that we've seen in white ball cricket. Um, but that pace was sort of perfect for this, this pitch as well um, because it sort of gave, the, gave that sort of extra spit off the surface that, and when there was already sort of enough bite. I do, I, you know, I think, you know, what, what, what do you take, eight wickets? I mean, I think it's often the case with, with spinners that come in the subcontinent home spinners and they come in and do immediately well at home, but it just it, it gets taken for granted. Um, we just assume that because they're not playing batsmen who are that proficient against spin, or, and that they're used to bowling in these conditions all the time, it kind of it's it's easy to overlook. But this this is still a Test match debut, and to look so at home immediately is is really impressive and uh, just a brilliant achievement. Um, his batting returns weren't great for a guy who's batting at seven, but if Ashwin's now a nick, that gives India a far better balance to. Yeah, I think that, that balance can be really important coming to the day-night test. I mean, you wouldn't expect it to be a green seamer, but equally that the ball just aids seams a bit more anyway, or swingers especially. Uh, and the conditions will need to be slightly... I mean, the, if, if, the, if the pink ball gets roughed up, that's a big issue because of the visibility being low already. So if, if, if India want to go in with three paces, uh, but they also want to pick Kuldeep, who's you know, a spinner who can kind of break through whenever. I think Ashwin's performance gives him real flexibility there because he, he can now bat at seven without the insurance of kind of like a proper number eight behind him. So they could go if they wanted Bumrah, Sharma, Siraj, Kuldeep, rather than having to have like sort of another bowling all-rounder in the side. I think that they, they might go with, might keep Akshar and he did bowl brilliantly. But I think that, yeah, Ashwin's performance has sort of given them a new level of flexibility, I think. Um, on England's batting, England were bowled out for 134 and 164, as well as India bowled. What do, what do you think went wrong with the bat, Joe? And do you think there'll be any changes made to the top order for the third test with Bairstow back in the squad and Crawley likely to be fit again? He's been included in the squad for that third test match. Um, I think they just got undone by a, a world-class spinner on a helpful pitch. Uh, it's a similar story to what we've seen before. I mean, it's the same old arguments, how much quality spin in these conditions to a lot of these batsmen see uh, there's not a lot of test caps in this England side particularly in this batting side uh, they're learning on the job it's difficult um, I don't think we expect them to be averaging 40-50 come the end of the series that's certainly not the more junior batting partners but they do need to be sticking around at least offering support to Root or Stokes if you can get going uh, and yeah I mean it certainly um, Burns has, has struggled Lawrence has struggled in this series uh, looking ahead to the third test, a lot depends on. I mean, like the Crawley they think will be fit, but how much batting will he be able to do? How much practice will he be able to do in the lead at the third test? That's quite a cru- crucial question uh, for me when considering whether he comes in. If he was ready to go, I'd, I'd play him, uh, and I would bring in Bairstow as well, and I would certainly drop Burns, who I think he's had a, a reasonably lucky England career in some ways. I, I think the we're too quick to jump on players for having poor records, but Burns is, Burns is averaging 30 from 42 knocks now in test cricket. It's about the same as Sam Robson, who was dropped after seven tests. Um, not much more than people like Alex Hales, Mark Stoneman. Um, 
he's obviously got a gritty Ashes 100. He, he's played some good knocks for England, but I, I think um, he's probably maybe escaped criticism to a certain extent. So, and, and I don't think he's uh, looked like scoring runs in this series. So I would, yeah, I'd, I would drop him for, for Crawley and probably bring in Bairstow for Lawrence as well. I think Lawrence, between Lawrence and Burns, I would say if one of them was to get a, a big score, I think Lawrence would be the more likely person to do that. Um, so if any one was to miss out, it would be Burns for me. But I think if Burstow is ready to go uh, and Crawley is considered fit, then I'd bring them both in. I think with Burns, he did have a really good Asher series. But Ben, you wrote a piece on, on Burns and about how, quite interesting, how he gets out in kind of weird ways, but also quite, he's had quite similar problems. He had a really bad series against Pakistan where he basically just got Shaheen, Afridi bowled really, really well against him and he really struggled, didn't get a score. Um, and for a while, he struggled against spin. He No bowler in test cricket has, has got him out more often than Ross and Chase. And if Ross and Chase is getting him out regularly in the Caribbean or in England, you know, it's not a surprise to see him struggle against Ashwin. And I think Ashwin got him out now every single time that he's bowled at him. Yeah, obviously a few things there. I mean, yeah, he, he did get worked over against Pakistan. I think Shaheen will work out over lots of players by the time he's done and players who are, you know, better than Rory Burns I think so there's not too much shame in that and I think you can you know as an opener you're going to get a few low scores and while that you know it's one of those things where if you're running a social media account as we do at Wisdom you can quite easily put in quite a far back parameter in terms of you know since the start of the Pakistan series Burns averages I think it's 9.75 now which obviously sounds very bad but I think that's only eight knocks in total and he's had a long break in the middle you know and has come and came into this test uh, or this series without a huge amount of cricket behind him. I see what Joe's saying, and I don't. I kind of don't see Burns making a big score. Uh, but equally, I'm, I'm not. I don't think his problem with playing spin is exactly technical in the same way as it looked like with Sibley in the first in the two tests in Sri Lanka. At least the first innings in Sri Lanka. Uh, it, it more feels like, and the, the fact that Ross and Chase has made him as bunny sort of speaks to the fact of how he just finds ways to get out against spin. In particular, I think that he has a way to kind of survive and get through for a bit, but his, his kind of feels like his scoring options just aren't really secure. So you kind of saw in the first innings of the first test, he kind of got through to 33, played okay, looked okay, then played a reverse sweep that went wrong. In this test, it was, you know, really hard conditions, battled through to into the 20s and then tried to, you know, close the bat face on one and got sort of like a bit of a leading edge to slip. I think that like that there's stuff to work with. And the other thing we know with Burns is that we've, we've been here before and obviously, you know, a player can't keep having to bounce back from poor form until you start wondering if actually that's just their level of like some good bits, but also quite long stretch of poor forms. But that Ashes 100, it's not just 100 in the Ashes, it was 100 in the Ashes on the back of, you know, intense scrutiny on his place. I mean, worked over by Boyd Rankin and Tim Murtra against Ireland. And he then, he kind of trusts in his own like technique to be able to see him through most challenges, but he also understands his own technique and can tweak it and figure out what's going wrong and then come back stronger. So I, I actually, I personally, I, I agree with Joe. I think what they will do if Crawley is fully fit and they're happy with the amount of practice he's had, I think they'll go Sibley, Crawley, Bairstow. I personally would go Sibley, Burns, Bairstow because I think Burns, as well, you know, the overall record isn't great. I think there's just, there's enough about him that, like, if there was anyone who was going to turn it round, I think you can reasonably expect that he might just be one of those players, I guess. So you're writing off Zach Crawley again, Ben? We're back to where we started. No, I mean, I, I think he could he very easily come back in for the, uh, for the fourth test. But I think, I think it's uh, equally you can be unfair to a player by, you know, selecting them based on a, an innings if you you know, what, what, what's ages ago now when he won't have had much practice and, you know, where he'll, you know, uh, look, looked a bit iffy in Shanker. I think you're, you're almost moving him from the line of fire slightly. But, yeah, I think that there, that there is a reasonable argument that Burns might make more runs the next test than Zach Crawley. I think that is just about where I'd lean at this stage. If, if, if Burns is dropped for the next test in place of Crawley, I mean, he's just massively going to look back at that first innings and, and think, why if? Because he was batting better than Dom Sibley. He was batting... He looked really comfortable in that first innings, flat deck. Was playing spin quite well. There's there's a nice shot down the ground to, to Ashwin, I think. Um, and then he just didn't need to play the reverse sweep. I know it's it's sort of uncool to criticise someone playing the reverse sweep nowadays, but 
Um, it was more just the fact that he, he had other scoring options. He was playing quite well and he, and he messed it up. At the same time, if he is dropped, I don't think he just falls out of England's plans. I think England have, a, have had a pretty stable batting group for the last, pretty much since Chris Wood took over. And he's been a part of that. And I think that, that they're treating this, you know, the last few years has pretty much been a cycle when I feel like Burns won't, won't drop out that easily. I think they'll still, even if he's dropped the, the rest of the series, I, mean, I think I can still sort of see him coming back in the summer, uh, him still going to the Ashes, having actually faced Cummins, Stark and Hazelwood in 2019 and, and come out of it looking pretty good. Um, so I think we, we have to start looking at tests, especially with the amount of England rotate now. We, we have to start looking at test cricket as a, as a, as a squad game and not think of it as if someone's dropped, that's, that's the end of their career. I'm saying this assuming that he's going to get dropped for the next test. I don't even know that, but there shouldn't be the assumption that his test career is just going to be, be over now. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. So I think that's, that's a, a fair point. And when I was referring back to these openers of Stoneman, Hales, etc., a lot of them were discarded too quickly. And, and Burns has showed that he can do it at times. Um, so I certainly wouldn't write him off. I think particularly in England, he's got, he's got a role to play. Um, I just think the series, particularly given the lack of practice he had coming into it, is, is potentially a bit too much for him. Yeah, I, I think the, the only thing for me in terms of his long-term place is it, is it depends how England end up viewing Ben Folks at the end of this series. Uh, he could well, I mean, from how good he looks in this test, he could, well, I mean, when he made himself undroppable before, that only lasted for two test matches and they did find a way to drop him. Uh, but if England do decide when they return to England that they want to fit Ben Folks and Josh Butler into the same eleven, the only way to do that, I think, is to move someone up to that number three spot. And then you're looking at maybe Crawley and see a bit of long-term things. So I, I equally could see a scenario in which Burns slips down the pecking order reasonably quickly while also recognising that him being left out doesn't have to be a death knell of sorts, I guess. Tar, what's your moment of the week? Uh, my moment of the week is uh, uh, one, particular, one particular take from, from Ben Folks. It was uh, Dan Lawrence came on to bowl in, in the second innings. Uh, got an off off break to sort of rip past leg stump, and folks sort of just plucks it out with one hand. Uh, I think England reviewed it, and it, it looked it was a pretty silly review. They reviewed for the court behind, um, but it was just one of those things where I sort of had to. I thought my eyes were playing tricks with me because his, his hand was so quick, um, and it was just a. He, I mean, he's he's the one plus point of this test match for England because he, he was brilliant. Um, I've. I've mainly watched cricket in the in the era where we have wicketkeeper batsmen, not specialist wicketkeepers. Uh, so I think for me that was probably the best the best spell of test match wicketkeeping I've ever seen. Really, um, some of the stump things ridiculous. I know Rishabh Pant kept really well. Um, folks, to be fair, actually you could say he did make a couple of errors where whereas I don't think Pant made any, um, but it was still sort of brilliant to watch um in terms of the whole wicket keeping debate don't really want to go there because i still think whatever ben folks does with gloves is is great but what's going to get him beside is if he makes runs which i think he's very much capable of um but yeah at the end of the day it's going to be it's going to be what he does with the bat that determines whether he still has a long test career really he's very much capable of it though yeah i think the, uh, the, the folks butler debate we've had before in the show, and it can get quite tedious. I think people generally underrate folks' batting and also underrate butler's keeping. Butler's kept very well recently. Um, we've, had, we've had a few questions in asking how many tests folks would have played if he was Australian at the moment, um, which I think is fair. I think folks is very, very unlucky to have played as few tests as he has done. But I think, as, as a lot of people remarked the last week, um, there's not an obvious way to get him into the England side away from Asia, but you definitely see the the benefit of having a um, a world class keeper because I think he, I think he kind of creates chances that aren't really there for for like standard keepers and um, a lot of people who know a lot more about wicket keeping than me comment on how good he was. Adam Gilchrist, Sarah Taylor, Matt Pryor, Kieran Morey, all all saying that he was very very good this test. Um, I, so I think there was one other really really good plus point for England this test match that Joe briefly mentioned at the top, and that was. Ollie Stone, um, he bowled with real pace. His body held up well in his first test for 18 months. And I kind of think that fitness permitting, not only is he a shoe in 
for the winter ashes if he can bowl at that pace with that consistency. But also, I really wonder if he can properly challenge Wood and Archer for the number one like genuine quick burst at some point in the English summer. I'm not sure if he'll play again this this series, but you know, I think it's easy to forget that before Archer became eligible to play for England in 2019 and before Wood had that test match in St Lucia in early 2019, Stone was a guy who had an amazing recent first-class record behind him and was kind of seen as the guy who could be that guy to, to lead England's fast bowling attack in somewhere like Australia. And because of Archer and Wood and also injuries, he's not really had the opportunity. And for him to have that test match, for this test match, I thought was really, really encouraging for England. As Nick Knight pointed out, I think on 17 different occasions, he is part of the ECB uh, fast bowling uh, contract system. It was really confusing. I have to admit, I, I drifted off uh, at one stage at about kind of six in the morning and I woke up and Nick Knight was saying exactly the same thing as he was when I fell asleep previously. I was, wasn't sure if I was some sort of alternate reality. Um, but anyway, it, it is a point worth making, but perhaps not quite as many times as he did. One thing we haven't mentioned yet that was a major talking point earlier on in the test is DRS. A couple of howlers earlier in the test that, well, I guess the first one wasn't really a howler, the, the Rohit, Sharma, non-stumping where the third umpire kind of just made a, a hasty uh, judgment call, uh, deciding that wasn't out, that, that Rohit might have had a spike behind the line. Um, but the, the real howler was, was the uh, referral that didn't check whether the ball flicked Rohane's glove when it did. And then there was also the Rohit LBW shout in the second innings where the on-field umpire decided that Rohit had played a shot when he very much hadn't played a shot after he was struck outside the line of off-stump. Replay showed the ball would have hit the stumps and it would have been overturned. We'll go to you, DRS Ben. Uh, do you think anything can be done to the protocols to avoid these errors? Uh, one of the listeners, Joe Newstat, asks, do the rules need to change regarding DRS and batsmen playing a shot? The no shot one is an interesting one because, I mean, so you presumably you have seen it if you listen to this podcast, but if you haven't, Rohit was doing that thing where you hide your bat behind your pad to sort of trick the umpire into thinking you've played a shot. And the thing is, is that there is slightly more risk to the batsman in doing it that way than in just completely shouldering arms and kicking it away because you do run the risk, I suppose, of the ball sort of bouncing up off your pad and taking a glove, for example. That, 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 so there is more of a risk in doing that. So it's not, I, I probably wouldn't have said it was a shot, but equally I can just about see how you might just be convinced. Um, the other thing is, is that the TV umpire at the moment, their job is to kind of decide on, you know, matters of fact in terms of, you know, is there evidence that the ball has hit the bat? Uh, is there evidence that the ball would have gone on to hit the stumps? Uh, using the, the technology available. Whereas a batsman playing a shot is a matter of opinion, even though most people might have one opinion and the umpire has a different one. I think once you take that, so, so, so the way, so the, sorry, the, the context is that TV umpires aren't allowed to des- decide if a batsman has played a shot or not. They take that purely from uh, the on-field umpire and then factor that into their reasoning. They don't judge on that after the team has taken a review. Uh, but I think you are sort of almost fundamentally changing the philosophy of DRS if you were to give the TV umpire say on that. What I would change uh, is that at the moment uh, the rules say that the on-field umpire aren't supposed to give the fielding team or well anyone any information about the decision they've reached before they take a review. I can't see how that helps you get to the best decision uh, and I can't see how it stops. This, this was a pointless review as soon as England took it and they heard it was no shot offered because you knew that Rohit was way out. There was a shot offered because you knew that Rohit was way outside the line and England wouldn't have taken it if they'd known. And it, if nothing else, it wasted two minutes of the test match because you had to wait for a review that we all knew was pointless as soon as that was made. I think that, uh, I think that yeah, um, umpires should be encouraged to say, uh, not out, uh, I think he was playing shot. And then England say, disagree, but we'll carry on. Um, and then the, what, what happened then is it kind of just snowballed in terms of uh, the rest of the decisions from then on. There was one proper howler, a few sort of judgment calls which could have gone either way. Uh, and by the end, the, you know, the, the, there, was no, there was no shortage of criticism of the, of the TV umpire with the, you know, Joe Root was given not out LBW with one that hit him very close to the stumps, but umpire's call showed that it was just outside the line or the centre of the ball was just outside the line of the stump. So, again, a reasonable call, even if it's one that some people felt the on-field umpire 
could have given out. I think that, uh, yeah, we're, and it's interesting to see how cricket's sort of discussion cycle and media cycle uh, turns in a test match on the basis of one shocker early on to then questioning every decision from then on out and becoming, in a way, by the end, it was almost like football's bar, really, where, uh, you know, you had every decision being sort of microanalyzed. But if that first decision happened, then the later decisions don't get scrutinised to the same extent either. I think I think that's sort of taken on the chin as sort of part of, of, of DRS for me. Uh, so, yeah, it was interesting just to see how that worked as well. The uh, Rahane won in the first innings, though, which didn't actually matter in the context of the game eventually. That was just completely ridiculous. I mean, it, I can just about understand the brain fade on the part of the third um, on the TV umpire to not follow it through. I mean, it's, it's obviously bad, but I can just about understand it. But the fact that, that couldn't, they weren't able to then communicate that back to the TV umpire to still get the right decision. And then when they sent it upstairs for LBW, which was pitching about kind of <laughs> six feet outside leg stump, the whole thing was just farcical. And England wouldn't have got their review back if it wasn't for Mark Butcher on commentary, genuinely. I mean, that, that's obviously what, what led to that sequence of events where they realised they'd made a mistake. The England management went to speak to the match referee. Uh, it, that was just a kind of really good example of cricket just getting it completely wrong in a completely un, a, like completely avoidable way. Uh, so that was frustrating. I think that's what really set the ball rolling in terms of this kind of like uh, scrutiny of, of the umpires. Who I thought they'd had a really good game in the first test, but the wheels did come off rather uh, in this latest test match. Yeah, and, and arguably, Joe, they, they shouldn't have even got their review back at all, even with Mark Bush having raised the error by, by the letter of the law which you'll be pleased to know that I have scrutinised <laughs> thoroughly. Uh, it, it only says that a team can have their review reinstalled if there's a failure of the technology. It doesn't talk about uh, the uh, failure of the TV umpire to follow the protocols or anything. And unless, uh, unless Mr Chowdhury is, is actually a robot, it's hard to call it a failure of the technology. It was just a failure of the third umpire. I think we can all say that common sense prevailed, though, which is, which is a good thing. Anyway, moving on from DRS. Joe, what's your moment of the week? And so my moment of the week actually came before the second test. Uh, I spoke to Jack Leach uh, about 24 hours after England had completed that first test win, um, which was very nice of him. He sounded exhausted. Uh, he'd just done his column for Sky Sports as well. He'd obviously done quite a bit of media after that game. So it was very nice to speak to us. Um, we actually asked to speak to him before the Sri Lanka series. Uh, and he said in the politest way possible that he didn't really want to talk at that point because he was fed up of talking about contracting sepsis and managing his Crohn's disease and he actually wanted to do some bowling first which, it, I, which I could completely understand and it made for a better interview when I did eventually speak to him because he had an extraordinary first test obviously withstanding uh, that or notwithstanding that the, the pant assault against him what not none for 79 for his first seven overs it looked like England's I would dispute what Tars earlier at the moment is best England's best spinner. I would say Jack Leach is definitely England's best spinner, personally. But uh, it looked like India might have knocked England's best spinner out of the attack within his first eight overs of the series. Um, so to come back in the way that he did, that magic dismissal of Rohit Sharma, uh, I thought really summed up Leach as a cricketer and what a kind of tenacious, resolute cricketer he's been, who hasn't really got his dues as as an England spin bowler so far in his his career. And look, he's obviously. He's not a world-beater. He's not Ravi Ashwin, but, but I, I think he's England's best spinner by some distance. And it's taken England a while to wake up to that fact. But I think what we've seen so far this winter, what, 22 wickets in, in four tests, um, generally keeping a lid on the run rate, um, pants assault aside. Uh, I think he's done a, a really good job. And he was, he was very honest about the, the treatment he got from Pant. He said he was shaken uh, on, on the evening of day three. He said he was low. He's, he's kind of... He doesn't play any white ball cricket. He's not really used to having that kind of treatment. But um, to come back the way he did, to get those couple of wickets early the next morning and, and then that big wicket of Rohit Sharma. And I thought he bowled well again in the second test. I thought he was a bit unlucky not to get a few more wickets. Um, and he is able to keep a lid on the run rate in a way that England's other spinners haven't really been able to do. So but hopefully he goes well for the rest of the series. But beyond that, I think he, sh he is England's best spinner and should be picked in whatever conditions doesn't matter that he can't bat number eight. He's a reasonable tail-ender. He's a better fielder than people give him credit for. Uh, and he should be picked because he's England's best spinner. What would you do, though, Joe, with that number eight slot? It does seem a backwards way to sort of think about a test three team. You should pick your four best dollars and then your seven best batsmen and let the rest take care of itself. But saying and decide that their first choice attack is 
Joffre Archer, James Hansen, Stuart Broad, and then Jack Leach is their best spinner. Mm. What, what, what is the solution? I mean, is, is it just sucking up a, a slightly longer than ideal tail or what? It is tricky. Uh, you're right, that would be a long tail. I think Archer's got more to offer as a test batsman than we've seen so far, which, to be fair, is, is very, very little in, in test cricket. Um, you would potentially have to look at Chris Wokes in that scenario as well. Um, but I think there's a bigger drop-off in England spinners than there is in their seamers. I think there's enough to work with in their seam attack to make sure that your number eight isn't a bunny. Whereas I think if you don't have Jack Leak as, as your number one spinner and Moen potentially drifts away, then I think the drop-off to the next spin bowler is, is quite significant. Um, and I think, I mean, it's a kind of bit of a cliche. I think if, you, if your top seven, seven aren't scoring proper runs, then you're going to struggle to win many test matches anyway. And Broad, on his day, can still snap a quick 30 Leach can stick around. It's not the worst tale ever. We're not getting back to kind of Malawi, Fraser, Tufnell days of, of, the, of the 90s. Uh, I think there's enough to, to get by. Uh, and let's be face it, when we get to Australia, England's never, tail never score any runs anyway, however good they're meant to be as, as batsmen. <laughs> yeah, well, one more thing on Leach that is related actually to, the, to Ben's DRS um, speech uh, is that I think England were... <laughs> England were and have been for a while, I thought, really nice in this test match. A lot of things went against them um, and, they act, and they reacted very calmly when the test basically could have been going a whole lot worse. Won't get into a huge debate about it, but if you compared the reaction of Joe Root in England compared to the reaction of Virat Kohli when decisions went against India, I think there was quite a stark difference between the two of them. Um, I think England have been quite nice for a while now. Arguably... Too nice, you could say. I mean, for, for that, uh, that, that ghost glove of Bajinki Rahane, if, if that had been the other way around, right, Cody would not have let that lie without being absolutely certain that, it, uh, that all the replays had been looked and every possible angle had been looked at. I mean, he, he, he wasn't happy to accept he'd been clean bowled on the first morning, so he definitely wasn't going to accept uh, uh, a dodgy replay. Um, but yeah, they have been nice. I mean, you know, in, England are also not faultless. We shouldn't, you know, eulogise them too much. They've got plenty of demerit points for swearing at South Africans and spectators uh, this time last year. But you're right, that was nice to see Root being a, a gentleman in trying circumstances. Mm. Yes, and away from that series, there was another brilliant test match in Bangladesh with West Indies winning the second and final test of the series by 17 runs to take the series 2-0. Uh, Nakuma Bonner, Joshua De Silva and Alzari Joseph got scores of 19, 92 and 82 in the first innings to get West Indies up to 409 Bangladesh, without Shakib, scored 296 in response before rolling West Indies out for 117. Taijul Islam taking four for 36. Bangladesh chasing 231. Looked good in the chase. They were 101 for three, but regular wickets pulled them full shorts despite a valiant effort from Mehdi Hassan at number eight, who looked to be taking them close at the end. Rakeem Cornwall was the player of the match, taking nine wickets for West Indies across the test. Um, Billy Johnson asked how impressive were the West Indies was the white West Indies whitewash of Bangladesh given the circumstances under which it happened, um, and if possible, who who has really staked their claim for a first team spot? I mean, I, I don't know exactly. I think it's going to be very difficult for West Indies to, to pick a top seven after this. With Bonner, I think he was named player of the series. Obviously, uh, Mayers in the in the first test, and Joshua Silver doing very well. And with with so many players out, I think it's going to be quite interesting to see how West Indies shape up for for the next test match. Yeah, I've seen Carl Mez's average has dropped down to 87, which is, which is just not good enough, really. Um, so, you know, he's too, too low scores. He is, he's in trouble. Um, but yeah, I, I get what you mean. It's kind of hard because you have to respect why people have dropped out of the series. These are obviously, you know, the circumstances are, are pretty crazy. Um, but then how can you not then reward what is uh, an astounding achievement to, to win Bangladesh is, is not, is, is not easy. It's not been that easy in recent years. England, England drew their one all Australia drew their one all. Um, and then for, for West Indies to do what they've done, you know, it, it's important for, for test match cricket to, to not just be centered on great contests between England and India and the other top nations. It's, it's important for, for these series as well to be to give to be given their due, uh, and to to have competitive games. Um, so overall, um, that that was it was great to see and yeah, massive achievement from from West Indies. Yeah, the, the other challenge as well is it's not just those players that have come in and sort of staked a claim 
uh, it's the fact that the players who, you know, they, they have missed out for completely legitimate reasons, but the likes of Darren Bravo, Shamar Brooks, they, they haven't completely nailed their places down either, especially Dar- Darren Bravo has obviously had a, a fantastic start to his test career and looks like, to be honest, there was a time when he could have been one of the, it could have been the big five rather than big four with Darren Bravo as part of it. Uh, and he's fallen away quite dramatically and there's kind of, you know, there's been loads of off-field stuff. It's, it's, he's really kind of struggled to kick on, I guess, but no reason's not entirely on his control, but that's still what the case is. But, but it's not just those players being out of form. It's the fact that there are other players who we know are very talented and who some in the West Indies would like to see playing test cricket despite not having played much first-class cricket. So the likes of Nicholas Poran, Shimon Hetmeyer, uh, these are players who also could legitimately make cases for selection. So I think, yeah, they, they've got, in a way, in a way it's a good problem to have. Actually, they've probably got quite a lot of players on quite a similar level, but they're also all very different kinds of players. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an unenvi- unenviable task. If, if I had to, to bet on it, Josh would still be in the team for a long time. Uh, Nkrumah Bonner, to me, although Carmez was obviously the standout knock, he looked the player with the sort of the, the, the most solidity in a way. So I would bank on him and Kyle Mayers playing the next test, but to, for Bonner to stay on the team longer for me. For any listeners with a particular interest in Bangladesh cricket, I would recommend following the Twitter account, Sight Screen Cricket Journal. Uh, it's a London-based Bangladeshi pundit. There's podcasts and video casts. Um, very good on Bangladesh cricket. Ben, what's your moment of the week? Yes, uh, it's obviously from the, uh, the T20i series between Africa and Open Pakistan, live on Sky Sports, unlike all the other international cricket at the moment. Um, it was, uh, yeah, just, just a little moment with uh, Tibray Shamsi bowling to Mohammed Rizwan, who had a brilliant series, got a got 100. Um, but uh, he did a, an Andre Russell, I don't know if you remember from the IPL a few years back, where Andre Russell was running up to bowl and then looked like he was pulling out. So Shane Watson sort of relaxed and then... All of a sudden, Russell clicked back into gear, bowled sort of like a nothing length ball outside the off stump, with which Watson sort of looked as it went through to the keeper and sort of like had that classic Shane Watson expression that he always has whenever he's, you know, LBW and can't believe it. Or <laughs> so, so Ray Shamsi basically did, did, did the same thing, but as a spinner, sort of was, was running, was sort of walking in and sort of relaxed, and then all of a sudden gathered pace again and bowled it. Rizwan sort of, uh, uh, didn't know what was going on so kind of blocked it out and then the umpire in this case called dead ball which is probably fair enough if it's a, uh, an attempt to distract the striker but it was just a, an interesting variation from a bowler who's got plenty of them. Yeah I think Shamdi's moved up to number two in the T20i bowling rankings at the moment. Um, Pakistan won that series 2-1, won the first game by three runs and the decider by four wickets. Mohamed Rizwan had a very good series called 100 in the first game, 51 in the second and 42 in the third. Tar? Yeah, I should say I watched a bit of that series as well. Um, and Usman Khader, who's the son of Abdul Khader, um, looks a, a proper bowler. He was sort of ragging it square in one spell, I think in the second T20i or the first, I can't remember. Uh, has a lovely googly on him and looks a, looks a, looks a proper bowler. So one, one to keep an eye on. Uh, moving on, in New Zealand, England women have played two warm-up games there, two high-scoring games. They won the first, lost the second. Runs for Nat Skiver in the first game, she scored 75. And there were 50s for Danny Wyatt, Heather Knight and Sophie Eccleston in the second. I think the second warm-up game got a bit funky because the scorecard reads that Knight scored two 50s in that game. The ODI series between England and New Zealand kicks off a week today. Um, and finally, we're just going to play a quick interview with um, a 16-year-old called Will Gaffney, who set up a charitable initiative called Bat for a Chance. Will, thanks for joining us. What is Bat for a Chance and how did you set it up? Um, so Bat for a Chance is a cricket charity um, which provides cricket um, kit to kids less fortunate than us all across the world who may struggle to come by it financially um, or even where they live. And it's set up off the back of me going on tour out to Sri Lanka um, at a young age and sort of seeing firsthand um, the need for kits um, and how much of an impact cricket has on these kids' lives. Mm. And you're, you're only 16, so how did you actually set this up? <laughs> Um, so sort of reflecting on the tour, um, it was quite the magical experience. Um, and the moment that stuck with me was playing candy on a coconut mat, um, against a village team. 
uh, who only had a couple of sets of pads between them. And I wanted to give back, get involved. I sent out a couple of emails. Um, and then it's kind of just exploded from there, really. And how many people does, does Back for a Chance provide kit for at the moment? Um, it varies. Uh, we get it to new places pretty much every month at the moment, it seems. Um, so far, we've reached the Lebanon, um, the Shatila Refugee Project out there um, in coordination with the MCC Foundation, who I work really, really closely with. Um, Sarah and her team out there are fantastic. Um, and I'm proud to be joining their Young Ambassadors team as well. Um, and most notably, um, recently, we got kit out to Sri Lanka uh, in between the first and second test funnily enough, and we were lucky enough to have Kumar Sangakkara having over the gear, handing over the gears for us, which is a real honour and something that myself and all involved will treasure for the rest of our lives. It was, it was a really magical moment. That's really cool. Um, so what, what can listeners do if they're listening to this and thinking, yeah, I want to help out? Where, where would you direct them? Uh, just literally search into Google, back for a chance, our website should come up and then there's two sort of donate forms on the website, one of which is the kit, um, we got a lot of second hand donations, the village cricket community in the UK is second to none um, and it really helps us out um, and yeah. Awesome, thanks a lot Will. Thanks Taha, thanks Ben, thanks Joe, this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast, if you've enjoyed the show tell your friends and if you're feeling especially kind why not leave us a five star review on the podcast app and if you if you like YouTube videos we are now on YouTube, not this podcast but we have short 20-25 minute discussions at the end of the India England test, cheers. Podcast Network.